We're heading to 1 Peter chapter 5 for a change. As you turn there, just wanted to let you know I had a very disturbing moment earlier today. I got up this morning to make my cup of coffee and the coffee pot was empty. Thank you for your... I felt that. That was... Thank you. Just for a moment, I felt this weight of a world without coffee. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. But we survived the early service. There was a few jitters. We made it through. And I did have a coffee during the coffee break. So hopefully we're coffeeed up. We're ready to go. If you came in late, we're turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to pray. I'm going to share some scriptures together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that there is an invitation to partake deeply of that which is far more important than food. But in one sense, your word does feed us. For we do not live by word alone, but by your word. Your word is a light and it's a lamp. It's the rock on which we stand. And Lord, I thank you that you are a faithful God and you're a God who loves to provide. Just as you provided for your people in the wilderness wanderings, each and every day there was fresh bread. So you continue to provide for us our daily bread. So Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would your word accomplish all that you desire? Lord Jesus, it's, it's our desire and our joy to see you glorified, to see your name exalted in us, in our midst, and through us, in our city, and in our nation. So whatever it is this morning that's on your heart for us, we pray that we would partake deeply of all that you have for us this day. Our loving Father and the giver of good gifts, we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 5, we're going to read a few verses together, starting at verse 1. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is the passage of Scripture for us this morning, and there's something in particular in here for us today. But let me open it up this way. What is the oldest sin recorded in the Bible? The oldest sin. Anyone want to have a guess? Participation here. It's okay. Here we go. A few people getting it. So you might be tempted to think, well, of course, it's Adam and Eve. So the garden, it involves an apple and disobedience. But in fact, there is sin, there's iniquity that's mentioned even before humanity was created. And it is, of course, the sin of pride. It began before Adam and Eve, 
And in fact, it concludes with the culmination, the ultimate expression of pride, what we often refer to as the Battle of Armageddon, where the nations of the world rise up against God himself. And I'll ask us this second question then. What's the sin that's still most prevalent in the heart of mankind, in the world around us? Now, you're probably thinking, well, there's a big list there. Where do we start? There's a lot to pick from. But I would suggest to us, if we think this through, that probably, in fact, I'd say a little more definitively, I would suggest certainly at the top of the list is pride. See, there's an invitation here. Think about this. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. There's a place that we're called to live. There's one entryway into that place. And it's this word, humility. And there's one thing that will keep us from that place. And that is the word of pride. And before we think pride exists all out there and not in here, I love Spurgeon's quote, on pride. He says this, pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a well-watered garden. How many gardens have a few weeds? I've had a bit of rain recently, and I don't know about your garden, but with my garden, it doesn't seem to matter how much effort you put into de-weeding it. It doesn't matter what you put down, doesn't matter what you try, there is just no way to prevent the weeds from coming forth. Where do they come from? It's a mystery. I have no idea. But as soon as it rains, as it has in recent, recent times, what's the first thing that springs forth in abundance? It is, in fact, I would suggest, weeds. And pride is like that. We think that perhaps we've done everything we can to avoid it, but sooner or later, whether it's through the rains of trial or the rains of success, it comes forth. And let me just give you a few, perhaps, home truths that I've thought about this week. In case any of you think that perhaps you are beyond temptation from the sin of pride. This week, as some of you probably we've prepared, or I should say more correctly, my wife's prepared our annual Christmas letter. It's not even a letter, it's a photo. She loves to put a photo of the family. Now, if you get a photo of the family, family photo, who's the first person you always look for in the photo? Yourself. Am I the only one here? That was, that was quiet. I thought that was an obvious response. What's the first thing you look for? She says to me, which photo do you like the best? Where am I going to look? I'm just being honest here. I'm going to look for myself. You know, there's six of us there. So the rest, it's just, you know, the best of five evils. I'm not really worried about anyone else as long as I'm looking good in the photo. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. What is our favorite thing to tweet about or Facebook or any form of social media? Even if you have a look at your own tweets, we love to tweet or Facebook or send photographs about ourselves. The breakfast we ate, the lunch, the dinner. And what, what I love is the Facebook posts or the tweets, the twits that try to be humble in the midst of photographing something about themselves. There's a photo and says, well, you know, I'm, I'm humbled. I'm greatly humbled to be invited to some famous event with famous people. Greatly humbled to be designated and called the most beautiful person in the world and <laughs> fill in the blank. We try, don't we? We try so hard to be humble. And yet before you know it, when the rains come, 
there spring up the weeds of pride. And yet there is a darker, more significant and serious side to pride. Just think for a moment of this picture that Peter paints. Three times humility is mentioned and there's three realities associated with humility. Number one, it says if you humble yourself, God will give you grace. He gives grace to the humble. How many of us want grace? That sounds all right. I'll take some grace. There is grace provided for the humble. The second one is it says if you humble yourselves, he will exalt you. There's no need to have to exalt yourself to fight for worth and significance. The God of heaven himself will exalt you. So we get grace, we get exalted, and then combined with the humbling under his hand is this invitation to cast all our anxieties. He says, I will take all your anxieties. So we could say it's carefree living. So for the humble, there is grace. For the humble, there is exaltation from God himself. For the humble, there is carefree living. What about the other side of the equation? What about for those who are proud? It says that God will oppose. Isn't that a horrible sounding word? It says God himself will oppose those who are proud. See, it's interesting to think, isn't it, that so often we think, well, there's a lot of opposition happening and we can be opposed by circumstances. We can be opposed by things that come against us in the world. But this passage says there is times where it could in fact be the love and the mercy of God that is opposing us in order to reveal our pride. So think about that equation. Where do we want to sit? Just think about it. We've got humility and we've got pride. We've got grace, given grace, carefree living. We've got exaltation or we've got Opposition. Wait up for a moment. Which side of the equation do we want to land? It's not a difficult question, is it? And I would suggest this. If we really weigh, weigh up this passage, if we really weigh up this invitation to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, I would say this. I suspect that, suspect that every single one of us would have a newfound passion for gardening to find those weeds, whenever it is they might arise, and to deal with them as quickly as we can. Unlike the weeds in my backyard, which, has anyone else had this thought? You look out the window, and the weeds are growing, and you think, I wonder if I just let them grow big enough, if they'll die a slow and painful death. <laughs> I have, I've experimented. It's about shoulder height, I've found. And at that stage, they die, but not before they've spawned 5,000 other even worse weeds in their place. And then you're kicking yourself thinking, I wish I just dealt with the weed when I could have. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dealing with the weeds of pride that will inevitably arise in our hearts. And there's three aspects of this that I believe Peter brings to our attention in this passage. Number one, if you're taking to notes, the essence of it, it begins in the heart of humility and pride begins with our relationship with God. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. And I want to take us back to the beginning. As I mentioned, this is something that's existed long before Adam and Eve, long before any sin that humankind has created. And pride was the downfall of Satan or Lucifer. Ezekiel 28 says this, 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. They were prepared. You were anointed as the guardian cherub. The ends of the earth, your possession. Whoops, wrong passage, wrong page. Just testing you. Who's following along? For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created. Just think about this description. Other passages, Isaiah, we get this picture that Lucifer, he wasn't just an angel. He was the anointed cherub. He was created, but he was the second in charge. He was more glorious. He was more beautiful than any other created angelic being. Perfect in every way. Until wickedness was found in you. That word for wickedness sometimes is translated iniquity. Until sin was found in you. So what is that sin? Because this will give us an understanding, I believe, of what the origin or the nature of pride at its essence is. It says, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. Through your widespread trade. This is one example of perhaps an unfortunate translation in the ESV. A better word would be through your merchandising, some translations say. Now, here's the picture. I did it the other way around at the early service, but I'll be kind on Adam this time. This is a picture of merchandising. And as I said, this, bear with me. This will show us the heart of where this issue of pride led Satan or Lucifer. Merchandising would be a little bit like this. It would be like if, for some reason, I think this is not prophetic, I decide that, you know, the ministry gig is not working out and I'm going to go sell cars for a living. So I get a job, I'm selling second-hand cars and Adam feels sorry for me. So he comes to see me one day and he says, look, I feel sorry for you. Can I buy a car? And so I sell him this really nice car that would suit him. What sort of car would it be? Convertible, a, a Toyota Camry. Yeah, it sounds like him. He gets the same cars every year, the same color. Anyway, let's move on. So he buys a Toyota Camry. $5,000 I charge him, but rather than putting the full $5,000 in the till, what I do is I put $4,000 in the till and I just keep $1,000 in my back pocket for myself. That is a picture of merchandising. It's taking what was never mine to take for my own use, for my own purpose. And you think, well, that's innocent, isn't it? That's harmless. You know, it didn't really hurt anybody. I'm a used car salesman. What else have I got to lose? But in the eyes of the Lord, look at this, through your widespread trade, through your merchandising, you were filled with violence. The Lord sees this as an act of violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, the guardian cherub from among the fiery stones, because your heart became proud on account of your beauty and corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. See, what is it that was Satan's greatest longing, his greatest desire, and ultimately his undoing. It was that he wanted to take just a little bit of that which God had given him. He was created, if you read other passages, to worship God. And rather than giving God the worship, he said, you know what? I'm just going to take a little bit myself. Just a little bit of merchandising. He longed to be worshipped, which is why the temptation, when he comes to tempt Jesus... And he says, all of this you can have if you will do what? If you will bow down and worship 
me. And that merchandising eventually led him, Isaiah 14, 12, 14. It says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For you've said in your heart, listen to this, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit upon the mount. I will ascend above the heights. And I will be like the most high God. And as I said, I paint that picture for this reason. The essence of pride is this. It assaults God's throne and asserts its independence in an attempt to dislodge God as the sovereign king. That's the essence of pride. You see, ever since mankind has been created, there has been a battle. There has been a battle. It's not for the throne of heaven, but it's for the throne of our hearts, the hearts of humanity. What is If you summarize it down, the heart of all the issues that we see around us, issues in our own life, issues in the world around us, what is it? I would say this, it's in essence, if you boil it down, it's a people wanting to rise up against God. Just take a little bit of the glory that he is worthy of. He alone is worthy of, just for ourselves, just to rise up. And Psalm 2 paints this in a, in a very powerful picture. I believe that Psalm 2 will be literally fulfilled in this end-time battle, the battle of Armageddon, where the nations physically will join together and rise against the Most High God. But in another sense, it is prophetically a picture of humanity in our walk and in our struggle to dethrone God from His rightful place. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Don't you love that phrase? What does he think? He laughs. (laughs) Really? Is that what you want to do? And it would be funny, except for the way that this psalm continues. It says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a pot of vessel. Potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath, his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So there's two pictures. This picture of a king. He said, I have established my king. There is one true king. And there's also in this psalm a picture of a world and a people doing everything within their power to say this, I will ascend, I will exalt my throne, I will sit upon the mountain, I will become like the Most High God. I'll become my own God. I'll become the king ruling on the throne of my own heart. You see, humility at its essence is simply this, it's unseating ourselves from the throne of our hearts. And I want you to get that. It's placing the one true king where he needs to be. Not just to take a little bit for ourselves. Merchandising, a little bit on the side. Kind of have a little bit of me and a little bit of 
Jesus. It's not work that way. A co-leadership thing. You know, we can rule and reign together. And the question, if we want to get this, if we want to understand the picture of humility, we've got to ask ourselves, who really is reigning on the thrones of our heart? So I could say more about that, but let's quickly move on in the interest of time. There's two more points. They'll be quicker, I promise. Hang in there. The second aspect he talks about here, so it begins, as I said, with our relationship with God. But he also points out humility as it plays out in our relationship to church life. He talks about, from 5 verse 1 onward, how humility works in the exercising of leadership. That leaders are to care with the diligence of a shepherd, not just for what they can get out of it, but what they can give in service to the king. He talks about humility in our submission to leadership. To submit to the leaders that the Lord has around us. He talks about humility and all of us being clothed in humility in the way that we relate to one another. So you could summarize it and say this. We are to be churches that are literally marked and covered and clothed with humility in every aspect of our lives. The way we lead, the way we submit, and the way we love and serve one another. <clears throat> and I have this concern about modern Christianity, and I know that I, from time to time, harp on about it. It's one of my little pet pulpits. But I think it's worth thinking about in the context of this. How do we be a humble people? How do we have humility in relation to others, leaders, one another? And what is it that's going to stop us? And there's one thing above everything else. I will illustrate it this way. In the large majority of my conversations that I have with people, it's probably similar for you, talking to people about why is it that they go to church? Not just this church, other churches, Christians in general. say, well, why is it you go to church? And inevitably they'll say, well, it's because I like the worship, or it's because I like the preaching, or it's because I like the Sunday school, or it's because I like the programs, or fill in the blank. Okay. And then the other side of the same coin is if ever you talk to someone about why they've left a certain church, what do they inevitably say? Well, they say, it's because I don't like the preaching, it's because I don't like the worship, it's because I don't like the Sunday school, or it's because I don't like the programs. So what is it, if you boil that down, my question to all of us is, why are we even coming to church? Is it for us, or is it for him? What's our motivation? You see, we've had this tendency to make us the center of our own faith. Well, there's another conversation I've been having in recent years with a greater frequency, and it's, it's from people who say, well, you know what, I, I love Jesus and I believe in Jesus, but I just don't feel like I need church anymore. I've got no need for church. I say, okay, well, why is that? Why do you have no need for church? And again, inevitably, they'll say, well, it's because I get everything I need from something else. I get everything I need from podcasts. I listen to these great teachers. I watch the services online. I'll say, look, I get everything I need. I've got some good fellowship groups, some friendship groups. We do coffee once a month. I get everything I need from that. Or people will say, well, no, I get everything I need from, from conferences. I got about one conference every decade, and it ties me over. I'm good. Now fill up, and I'm, I'm going for another decade. Good to go. See, the problem is it's, it's not podcasts and it's not coffees, fellowship. It's not conference, definitely not coffee in general. It's not conferences. The problem is think about that statement. Just think about it. 
What's wrong with that statement? I get everything I need. It's that all of a sudden, I have become the center of my own faith. You see, there is a reality we've got to get, and it's so subtle, but it's infiltrated modern Christianity, that we've made ourselves the center of our own faith. We weren't saved just so we could serve ourselves. We weren't saved just so we could get all of our needs met. We weren't saved just so we can love ourselves more. We can look in the mirror. We can just lap it up. I love myself more and more every day. We were saved for a far greater purpose, and it's a purpose that's got nothing to do with us. 1 Peter 2.9, we've talked about this passage before. It says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. He's the center of our faith. He always is. He always will be. He saved us so that we would glorify his name. Why is it that there's so many broken relationships and difficulty in marriages and church splits and contention? It would be nice if there was one simple answer. There's not. But Proverbs 13.10 says this, It's only by pride that contention comes. You see, I can give you one guarantee, and it's this. Just as surely as pride erects a barrier between us and God, just as surely as it dethrones Him from the throne of our hearts and puts us in His stead, it also puts a barrier between us and one another. Whilst ever we're ruled by pride, we only live for what we can get. We're the center of our own existence. We're just lapping up ourselves more and more. Just give it to me. That's what I'm all about. Whereas humility takes us from that place of looking for what we can get to what we can give. And that will play out in the way that we serve, in the way that we lead, in the way that we submit, in the way that we love one another. So humility is essential to our relationship with God, but it's essential to our relationship with one another. And there's just one final one really quickly. And this is not one that I'd really thought about until this week preparing this message. But humility is essential in terms of our relationship to worry and anxieties. And that's an interesting link, isn't it? Let's have a look at verse 6 again. It says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and how do we do that? It's a comma at the end of verse 6. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him. And you literally get the picture that you can't do one without the other. How do we humble ourselves? Well, at least part of it is learning to cast our anxieties. The word for anxiety literally means the burden that comes with uncertainty and apprehension. You say anxiety, cares, worries. How do we do it? By casting our anxieties on God. Now, why is that essential? Or why is that? How does that relate to this picture that, that Peter is painting to us of humility? I would suggest this. Where there's anxiety, where there's worry, at some level we are always saying that I have a greater confidence in the problems around me than I do and, and my ability to work through the problems, or to not work through them, than I do in the mighty hand of God. See, it's an issue of trust. And just think about this expression, the mighty hand of God, because it's something that you see throughout the Old Testament. We read that it's the mighty hand of God that stretched forth the heavens. 
It's the mighty hand of God that parted the Red Sea. It's the mighty hand of God that delivered his people from captivity, that rescued and redeemed. The mighty hand of God. See, proud people try and take matters into their own hands, but humility says, no, there's another place that I am to live. And it's humbling myself under his hand and control. I'm trusting him. See, it's not that we have cares and worries that's the issue. There's always going to be cares. There's always going to be worries. There's always going to be anxiety. It's not that we have them that's the issue. It's what do you do with them? What do you do when you're weighed down with cares and anxiety? Well, here's the encouragement here. Verse 7 says, cast your anxieties. It says cast them. It says get rid of them. Have nothing to do with them. Cast your anxieties. See, it doesn't say gently place them. Ask the Lord maybe if he'll just help you along. Maybe you, know, you can do a dual carrying thing. You can work this out. It doesn't say I'll, I'll help. He says, he says cast it. Cast your anxieties and your cares and your worries upon the Lord. See, I look around me and I see a people who are wearied. I won't ask for a show of hands. People who are tired. People who are burned out. And it's not always the case, but so often it is worries, and it's anxiety, it's stress. It's all of these things that actually are essential to learning to live a life of humility. All these things are weighing us down. And the Lord is saying, come on, you just got to give them to me. You've got to learn to cast your cares and your worries. As soon as you see them, as soon as the rain comes, and there they are sprouting up again. As soon as the difficulties come, all of a sudden, doesn't matter what you've done, there they present themselves again. It's not that they're presented. They're going to come, but you've got to know what to do when they do come. And this is our encouragement. Don't try and work them out yourself. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand, knowing that he cares for you. He's willing and he's able. He cares for you. His hand that delivered, his hand that saved, his hand that rescued. And his hand that he says in his mercy and his grace if you want to live in pride, he will oppose you. It's all right. You see how that goes. You see how ruling the throne of your heart goes? You see how putting your needs above others go? You see how working through your own anxieties and cares goes? Well, you let me know when you're ready. When you're ready, you come to me. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of the God who cares for you. So as we conclude just invite you to focus on the Lord. So if that means just putting aside distractions, closing your eyes, turning your attention to Him. Where's Jeanette gone? Is there? And I want to bring us back to that invitation that we began with. See, we have this incredible opportunity. It's a place that each of us want to live under the mighty hand of God to know the grace that he promises us. He gives grace to the humble. To know the 
exaltation that comes not from our striving, trying to put ourselves forward, comes from resting in Him and allowing Him to exalt us in good time. To know this picture of bringing to Him not just the good stuff, but the cares and the anxieties and the worries and the doubts and the fears, as quickly as they come, we give them to Him. So I want to give the Lord just a moment this morning to speak to our hearts. And just ask that question, Lord, is there anything that you are saying to us? You see, the responsibility is up to us to get busy weeding. We don't want to be a people that just watch from a distance thinking, well, let's just see how big they get. Let's just see if maybe if it gets big enough, it'll die all on its own. But to say, you know what, if there is any pride, Lord, would you show us And we want to come? We want the grace. We want the carefree living. So it may be that in this moment with the Lord that there is a sense of him showing you that perhaps there is pride in your relationship with God. Perhaps there is a wrestle for lordship. Perhaps you realize there is a sense in which you've dethroned him from his rightful place. You're living for yourselves. Just a little bit of merchandising. It's just, just a little bit for me, Lord. The rest is yours. It's mainly yours, Lord. Just, just 10%. Maybe there's pride in your relationship with others. Maybe there's a lack of willingness to submit. Maybe there's a putting of your desires above others. You realize you've been living not out of a place of humility, but a place of pride. And maybe there is pride in relationship to worries. You're burdened, you're weighed down, you're exhausted trying to work out these things yourself. It's that weight of anxiety. You know, it's my prayer this morning that the Lord would lift. He wants to lift. He cares for us. But it's our own pride that causes us to hang on to those things. He says there's only one thing to do when you see that. Just cast it. Get rid of it. So if there is things this morning, it can be any of those, it can be others that the Lord's doing. I want to give us a moment. Just in our own way, in the privacy of this moment between you and the Lord, to repent. Say, Lord, I repent. I can see that there is pride in my life. And to choose, as we're instructed to in this passage, to humble ourselves. Lord, I repent of this and I confess to you. This is where it's at. Lord, I want to get rid of those weeds. And I want to humble myself again. I'm coming back to live under your mighty hand. That's where I want to be. I want to let you rule. I want to live with humility to others. I want to live carefree. Not that I don't care, but I know that you do. So you can do that just in your own way confessing to the Lord anything that he's revealing to you and just asking for forgiveness.
He's a good and gracious God, dealing with the issues of pride in our hearts. If there is anyone this morning you'd like to stand with someone, have someone pray for you, we have a prayer team, you come forward. There'll be someone who would love to stand with you in prayer. So Lord, I thank you for this time together and as we move from this place, Lord, would would you do, we give you permission to do everything that you desire. We want to be a humble people. We want to be a people who know your grace in our lives and in our midst. So Lord, we want to not leave here today without doing business with you. Reveal those areas of pride in our hearts. And give us the grace, Lord, to repent and to turn back to you. Humble ourselves again under the mighty hand of the King above every King. We pray these things, Lord, in your name.